Amen. Good morning, church. Good to see you all in the power of the Spirit, since we don't have a lot of power from Home Electric Association these days. Uh, thanks for blowing in uh, this morning. It's been a crazy past week with the holidays and the windstorms and the power outages, but uh, we're going to learn today what it means to be a powerful witness. Lord timed that just right. Uh, it is good to be here. We just declared that our God is good, and it's really the belief of that truth um, that is central to our, our lives. Do we truly believe that our God is for us and not against us. And, and so my name is Justin. I'm one of the elders and teachers here at Peninsula Grace. I uh, see a lot of new faces this morning. Uh, just excited to kick off a new year and, and just claiming that truth that he is so, so, so good. And some of us come in this morning feeling that goodness. Some of us are desperately longing to, to believe that when, when life can be bad and hard. And so we gather together to, to praise him. And as we enter into this year, we come after a crazy 2020, crazy 2021. And, and one of the things that we want to, we're going to start a new series uh, this morning in the book of Acts. And we're going to be looking at what did the early church look like in the first century? And what were the problems that they faced? How did the gospel go out? How did the people of God live in community in that culture at the time? And then we want to take that and say, well, what about today in the 21st century? What does it look like for us as the church to live in this culture in this time as faithful, powerful witnesses in the name of Jesus? And so one of the things that we've been talking about as elders to take a step into that, and in your bulletin, there's a little blurb. It's called, we're going to have what we're called church and culture conversations that we know we're living in crazy times, and there's some things that we're, we're trying to work through as believers, as a church. What does it look like to be a follower of Jesus today? And there's some complicated things that, that can't all be unpacked just up here in a sermon. Like, I'm monologuing, you're listening. We need to have conversations. So by faith, one of the things we're going to do is we're going to have uh, four potlucks over the course of the spring, and we're going to have these based around some light, easy topics, uh, like what does it look like with the relationship of church and government? <laughs> uh, we're going to talk about uh, sexual identity. We're going to talk about what it looks like to be unified uh, in the midst of, of, of some, a lot of the racial discussions. And, and then what does it look, what, is, what does spiritual gifts look like today? So just easy topics that we'll all just get along with and <laughs> hold hands. And we know, I mean, there's a risk that you run with that. But here's the deal. We're, why we're doing this is not to step away from that lunch going, we figured it out. Or here's Peninsula Grace's stamp on this issue. No, what we want to do is learn how do we have loving conversation in the midst of the diversity. We can find unity in the name of Jesus, even when we don't agree on everything. And we're going to go, how do we talk about these things? And what does the Bible say about it? What does the Bible not say about it? And how do we have loving conversation? Listen, the world is watching, and it's the way that we love each other that they'll know that Jesus came to die for them. And so we need to learn how to love one another in conversation throughout these things. Otherwise, it's a false unity. And we're just pretending like we get along. We can't even talk about the, the hardest issues. And so in love, in humility, we want to come together for those times for lunches just to talk about some of these issues because these are on our hearts. These are the conversations we're having on Facebook and in our homes. We need to have them as the church. So we would invite you into those church and culture conversations. If you have your Bibles, we'll be in Acts chapter 1 this morning talking about powerful witnesses. We're starting this study here in the book of Acts around 60 AD, but to start out, I want us to travel back in time even farther to 44 BC when the Roman Empire is in complete control. If Beyonce was kicking out singles, this time she would have said, who runs the world? Rome, Rome. There you go. Very good. Yeah, you got it. But she was not there. Uh, she, Julius Caesar has been assassinated, and that left an, a vacancy 
in, on the seat uh, for the, the, the control of the Roman Empire. Now, Caesar had no children, Julius, but he did have an adopted son by the name of Octavian. At this time, Octavian is only 19 years old. Any 19-year-olds in the house here today? Most 19-year-olds don't know how to run a checking account. No, no offense, Braden. Uh, let alone an empire. I'm sure you do great with your... That's cool. So anyway, uh, we... So here he, he has a moment where he can step into the throne, but he has to prove himself. And so Octavian makes this brilliant move. They're, they're four months after the assassination of Julius. They hold this seven-day funeral games, these gladiatorial games, how they celebrate everything. And, and there's this comet that goes streaking across the sky. And Octavian sees his moment, and he says, hey, there's my dad. And he makes this claim that that comet through the sky is Julius Caesar ascending into the heavens. Now, the reason he could make that was because Julius himself had claimed to be divinity. That he came, he, he said, I descended to this earth from the goddess of love, Venus. And that when I die, I will go back and ascend and sit at the right hand of God. And so Octavian sees this moment and claims that that's my dad. And so what he sees is in this moment, he can validate that his dad was who he says he, if my dad is a divine son of God, who does that make Octavian? You'd better put me on the throne because I am a son of the son of God, a claim to be Caesar. But Octavian is not the only one who saw an opportunity to capitalize on the situation. Here's even some of the coins that Caesar uh, would use. Uh, they, they have the comet on the backside. That's the one that Jesus would have used to say who, whose face is on this denarius. The comet is on the backside about this moment of the divine ascending to the right hand of the Father. So there are these 12 senators that were there in rule at the time, uh, and, and they said, yeah, you know what? Uh, Octavian's right, and we saw it too. They said, we are witnesses of Julius's ascension to the right hand of the Father. Are you hearing any parallels with our Bible story? And what they said was, oh, and conveniently they added, Julius said that we, 12 senators, have been tasked with being his ambassadors, his witnesses, to take the name of Julius Caesar to the ends of the earth in the name of the Roman Empire. And they saw this as a power move. They could piggyback onto Octavian's claim, and if they could do that, they could actually hold Octavian himself in check with their own power. So what do we see? The Roman Empire is being built on power grabs and lies. And Octavian would be, later become better known as Caesar Augustus. And we've heard a story about Caesar Augustus. We just came out of the, the month of Christmas, and the Linus version is probably my favorite. But he says, in those days, a decree went out from who? Caesar Augustus, who was the Caesar at the time of Jesus' birth, that the whole empire should be registered. A, a doctor by the name of Luke tells a story years after Caesar Augustus's ascend to the throne. And he says that while that Caesar is on the throne, another star is shining brightly. And another man claims to be the son of God, descending from the real God of love, not, Phine not Venus, but Yahweh himself. Luke says, let me tell you the true version of how the real king came to establish the true kingdom of God. And then in his second book, Luke tells the story of how this true king ascends back to the right hand of, of God. 
And what we see is he's claiming that Jesus Christ is the God who ascended into heaven. And we see that countered with Julius's claim to be the God who ascended. And Julius said, I've got 12 witnesses that are going to take my fame to the ends of the earth. That Jesus also had 11, soon to be 12, as a replacement for Judas, witnesses to go out and to make disciples that, that, that Julius's empire was going to be spread by these witnesses claiming that he is the king of the world. And Jesus, too, sends his followers out to make the claim that Jesus Christ is the true king of every heart. But what we see in the book of Acts is this clash of kingdoms. There's a worldly empire of Rome versus the heavenly kingdom of God that he's bringing to earth in the person of Jesus. And in this worldly empire, it's built around lies. It's built around power grabs and manipulation and humiliation through crucifixion. Whereas the kingdom of Jesus is through speaking the truth in love. And not power dominating over people, but a power to serve and place ourselves under people just like our risen king. And so we see... In this tension in the book of Acts, which kingdom is going to win out, the empire of Rome or the kingdom of Jesus? You look at the book of Acts, a little bit of a, a what's going on here, uh, an overview. The author of, of Acts is, is Luke, and, and he is a traveling co-worker of Paul. And you'll see him pop up in the story of Acts later on, second half of Acts. He starts using the word we randomly. So he's actually, that's when Luke is traveling with Paul. We went here. We did this. Luke's involved. And then we see that he's a physician. He's a, it's, it's Dr. Luke to you. Thank you very much. He's the only Gentile, which means not coming from Jewish descent, that authored a book of the Bible. It's a little fun fact for you. Who is Luke, Dr. Luke writing to? He says, to Theophilus. Now, Theophilus is a word in the Greek, two parts. Theos means God, and philos, or philos is friend. Philadelphia, theology, God and friend. So it could mean someone who's a friend of God, one who loves God. And we don't know if this is a real person or not. There's arguments on both sides. It doesn't really matter. But what we know is he's writing to this person he's, he's addressing as Theophilus. This is written around 61 AD. So think about 30 years after Jesus has risen uh, from the dead. Now, why did Luke write this book to Theophilus? Well, we see that the, the book of Acts is actually the second part of a two-part volume. Uh, Luke wrote both the Gospel of Luke and Acts. And so this actually would have been, back in the day, they would have all been on one scroll. So if you were reading Luke and Acts, they'd come together in a one-volume set. And, and, and so for the purpose of Luke, let's look back at the beginning of the scroll. So we'll know both why he wrote Luke and why he wrote Acts. Luke 1 says, Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, what Jesus had come and, and, and done. Just as the original eyewitnesses, those who saw him, and servants of the word handed them down to us. So it also seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first, to write to you, and this is the doctor talking, an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus. Why? And he says, here's why I wanted to write you. So that you may know the certainty, in your blanks there, of the things about which you have been instructed. He says, why am I writing to you? I want you to know that the truth that Jesus claimed is indeed 
true. His story is the true story. He says, Theophilus, and he would say the same to you and us, the most important thing in our lives is that we know the certainty of who Jesus claimed to be and what he did on our behalf. And so how did Luke say he could help us know the truth? He says, well, there were these eyewitnesses that saw it. Luke is giving us a second-hand account of first-hand witnesses. In the book of Luke, we see these witnesses, those who walked with Jesus, ate with Jesus. They saw his birth. They saw his life lived out. They saw him die on the cross and then raise again. And then we go to the second volume, the second half of the scroll, and we see witnesses who saw him rise from the dead and then ascend to the right hand of the Father and to take that witness to the ends of the earth. And so we open Acts chapter 1. I have it in the Christian Standard Bible up here on the screen. Follow along in your copy. He says, I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. Word we use for ascension. He, he ascended to the, to the right hand of the Father. So what we see, what did he say? In Luke, so my first narrative, my first story was what Jesus began to do and teach. That's the gospel of Luke. So what is he implying the gospel of Acts is, the good news, is that this is what Jesus continued to do and to teach through his followers. Both volumes, the entire scroll, just like the entire Bible and all of life is ultimately about the person of Jesus. The key verse in Acts uh, is, is Acts 1.8. Jesus is talking right before he ascends to his apostles, his sent ones. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses. We're going to call this series Witnesses of His Resurrection. With I, I proposed calling it Jehovah's Witnesses. And for some reason, the elders said no. That was kind of a different connotation, so I guess I'm outvoted. Oh, well. Uh, so the book centers around uh, those who witnessed the, the risen Jesus and, and were sent to continue to do all that he began to do and to teach. So let's look at this. Uh, three things this morning. First of all, the power of Jesus' witnesses. The power of Jesus' witnesses. So he says, I wrote, <coughs> excuse me, I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, in my water bottle. I'm a, I'm a little parched. Um, I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do. Thank you, sweetheart. All that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up after he had given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After he had suffered, after he died, he also presented himself alive, that's the resurrection, to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So remember, Jesus had lived on this earth for three years doing ministry, teaching by example and by word his disciples, his followers. And now after the resurrection, it says he spent 40 days showing them he is alive and showing them, teaching them what they're going to continue to do and teach in, in his name. Now, you remember, in, in the Gospel of John, John, Jesus makes this crazy claim. He says, it's actually better that I leave. Now, think about that. What in the world could be better than the very physical presence of Jesus in the room with us right now? What could be better than that? And John, he tells us, Jesus tells us what that is. He says, but in fact, it is best for you that I go away. 
because if I don't, the advocate, it's a name for the Holy Spirit, the comforter, as we said last week, won't come. If I do go away, then I will send him to you. So Jesus says, what's better than my flesh and blood, body walking around, is actually sending my own personal presence into all of my followers. He's multiplying himself. That each believer will have portable Jesus in them wherever they go. This is what he says in verse 4. While he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise. He says, don't go anywhere until you have the power, which he said, you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. So the word baptized means to place into. When you baptize somebody into the water, they're placed into the water. So to be baptized with the Holy Spirit means the Holy Spirit is placed into you. Now, what we see is this is the power they're going to have in them. He says in verse 8, but you will receive power when? When the Holy Spirit has come on you, when he indwells you. He says there are things that I'm going to call you to do that you can only do with the power of the Holy Spirit operating in and through you. I had a convicting question asked to me once. What would, would my day, would, would a day in my life look any different if the Holy Spirit didn't indwell me. In other words, how often are we operating in the power of the Holy Spirit versus operating in our own strength according to our own wisdom? So what's the power of, the, of Jesus' witness here? It's the Holy Spirit. The Spirit, the very presence of God. Not an impersonal force, but the very person of God dwelling in us. But why is he in us? What is the purpose of the power of the Holy Spirit in each one of us? Well, I'm glad you asked. Um, if you could have one superpower... What would it be? Well, if you, you get any superpower you want, let me have a couple suggestions from the congregation. What's a superpower that you would? Yes. Healing. Healing power. That's a good one. And kind. That was a good, okay. And what else? What's another superpower you would have? Teleportation. Teleportation. All right. Our missionary. That makes sense. Right. Uh, any, what else? Another one. <coughs> Strength. All right. Okay. Fire. Fire. Your dad just lost, he swallowed his tongue. I don't think we want Ellison to have the, the, the superpower of fire. Oh, buddy, that would be awesome. So mine, mine, this is the nerdiest one. I would have a perfect selectable memory. That's my superpower. That I could, like, I would, my brain would be a giant library where I could still learn, but then once I have that information, I re could recall it at command. Isn't that a really nerdy superpower? Don't judge me. Uh, so the word power here in the Greek is dynamis. What, what does that word look like? It's like the word dynamite, right? And that's what it means. It's, it's a power. When we say something's dy dynamic, we mean it's active. It's powerful. And so what Jesus is telling his disciples is, I'm going to put my power, my dynamite inside of you. And the apostles get super jacked up when they hear that. You're going to put your power in us, Jesus? Let's do this. Verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? Are you giving us power to do some work? He says, and they're tracking with all the promises that God had made. So to the people of Israel, remember, remember he told Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. And then he said, from David, there will descend this king who will rule from Jerusalem, not just over Israel, but over the entire world. So they're looking forward to the, the, the promise being fulfilled. Is it time? They're saying, Jesus, are you giving us the power to go Hulk mode on the Romans and rule over the world in the name of Jesus? Let's go. And Jesus says, chill out, bros. 
Chill out. Verse 7. He said to them, It is not for you to know times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. Now, notice he does not rebuke them for what they're saying. It's a when issue. There's a day coming when Jesus is going to return. and He will rule on physical earth over all of physical creation. But that day is not today. And so he says, what are you going to do in the meantime? Verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So if the power is not to fight the physical Romans and establish a political kingdom on earth, what is the power here for? He says, you'll receive power, and this is what you will do with that power. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, I imagine this to be a record scratch moment for them. Power to what? To witness? Like when, when I think of the word witness, I think about a witness on the stand, right? Who gives account of what they saw. I saw the accident, honor, this is what happened. So he's saying, there's a, you gave us the power to be able to give an account for things we saw. That's a terrible superpower, right? Whoopie ding dong, where's the fire, right, Ellison? Like, come on, let's do this thing. And so what is he, what is he saying? So Jesus was a man who had started walking around backwoods Israel, making this claim to be the king of the universe. And he said, my death will be the rescue of all of mankind. Now, I could claim that, right? Like, I could walk around Sterling and be like, all right, everybody, I'm the king of the world. Tomorrow, I'm going to be drowned in a lake, and then I'm gonna, but I'm going to raise up again and for the life and prosperity of all the peninsula. You guys would say, this guy has lost his ever-loving marbles, Right? So how did Jesus prove that his death meant life for the world? Well, the proof was in the resurrection. Now, again, I could claim that. Like, dude, you guys missed it. Last night, I died and totally resurrected. It was amazing. Right? I am who I say that I am, right? But here's the difference between me and Jesus. Here is one of the many, many differences between myself and the Savior of the world. Uh, he had witnesses of his resurrection, right? 1 Corinthians 15. He was seen by more than 500 of his followers. That's what Luke says at the beginning of the scroll. They were eyewitnesses. There were people who saw him die and they saw him raise and spent 40 days with him verifying he is alive. But why do they need the power to be a witness to that? Like how hard is it to go? Yeah, I saw Jesus, right? I don't need, I don't need the power of the Holy Spirit to say that. I have eyeballs. So why did they need that power? Well, as we read the book of Acts, what happened to these witnesses? Did everybody go, oh, thanks for telling us the truth? We will follow him now? No. What we read in the story is a story of witnesses being rejected, being beaten, being stoned, being whipped, being killed. We see a, a, an empire that does not want a rival claim to the throne. They say, no, 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 no. Caesar is the king, not this threat named Jesus. The, his own people, the Jewish nation, the rulers, do not want Jesus in control. They want to control it themselves. And we see a whole world rejecting, by and large, the, the witness of Jesus. In fact, the word witness here that's going to be used in Acts is the same Greek word. It's the Greek word martis. What do you see in that word? You see the word martyr. Right? In fact, to be a follower of Jesus, to be a witness of his resurrection, would eventually become synonymous with dying because of how often that was happening. I want to tell you in the world today that we are still the exception to the rule to not have a threatened life because of the witness that Jesus is king. So that's why they needed the Spirit's power in them. 
to speak the truth in boldness, even when it meant death, and to accompany the miraculous signs that Jesus was, who he claimed that he was. So we ask ourselves, man, what am I willing, willing to die for? What, what would I today be willing to put my life down for? Now, I look at my own life, and I see the weakness. Right? I, I, we were hiking uh, this last summer with our small group, and Jill and I were walking side by side. We come around the corner, and there's this bush that starts to move, and then it starts to rumble. Rah, 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 rah. Now, in the moment, there are different eyewitnesses of the account. <laughs> It's claimed that I jumped backward behind my what turned out to be pregnant wife, right? I saw it a little bit differently. I was backing up to give the appropriate distance between me and the bear to get out my bear spray and superhero that thing in the face, right? That's why I think I was not everybody agreed. Now, it turns out the bear was Josiah Martin uh, <laughs> trying to scare us, and I should have pepper sprayed him in the face. What I discovered in that moment is I am a certifiable weenie, right? Like, I do not have the, the courage to stand up to a shaking bush, and I threw my pregnant wife in front of me, allegedly. I do not have the courage to be a faithful witness unto death without the dynamite power of the Spirit in me. And that's the whole point. Just a few weeks prior, these disciples are the same guys that all abandoned Jesus, fled. And, and now he says, these are going to be the courageous rocks I'm going to build my church on? Luke says, you need to know that Jesus is alive. That is the most important truth that you could ever grapple with. And one of the greatest proofs is his disciples' willingness to literally go to the grave making this claim that he was alive. Who would die for a lie? They can only do that with the power of the Spirit. In the book of Acts, we're going to see the gospel, the good news of Jesus expand. We're going to see Jesus' kingdom expand. But it's not going to be through human strength and courage. It is going to be through the Spirit's strength in weak vessels. Despite the fact that it's a band of misfits against the Roman Empire. Despite the, the fact that it's against those guys that just fled a few weeks ago and are now going to stand up and preach boldly with rocks being chucked at them. And just like today, the only hope that you and I as weak vessels have is the Holy Spirit's work in and through us. Amen. The purpose of the Holy Spirit's power is to give his followers the ability to be those faithful witnesses, even if it means giving up their lives, just like the one that we follow did. So what is this going to look like? What's, what's the process? As we look at the next 28 chapters of Acts, how, does this, how do these witnesses, empowered by the Spirit, go out? Well, the where is talked about in this key verse as well. It says, you'll receive my Spirit when it comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He's not just spouting off random geographical locations. This is an intentional ripple effect of the gospel. And we're actually going to see this serves as an outline for the rest of the book of Acts. That you see is a cool little graphic I found on the Googles. It's Acts chapters 2 through 7 are going to be that first little circle in Jerusalem. That's where they are right now. That's where we're going to start. And then in chapters 8 through 12, it, the circle expands. And they start taking the gospel to, 
to Judea and Samaria, the surrounding area. And then the rest of the, of the book is going to be taking that gospel to the ends of the earth. In fact, uh, the book ends with Paul going to Rome. At that time, they thought of the ends of the earth as the sphere of the Roman Empire. So when he goes to the heart of the empire, to Rome itself, what looked like failure in that moment, he was going in chains, was actually a very, very free man taking the gospel and preaching it even to the soldiers that were chained to him. Like This is what the gospel is doing. It's incredible. And of course, today we continue that because that was not actually the ends of the earth. Now, God, through Luke, he wants to show this movement from the people of Israel to all nations. That's what Abraham was promised, right? Through you, I'll make a great nation. And through that nation, Israel, I will bless all nations. And that is going to come to fruition here in the book of Acts and, and beyond. So we see this story of Jesus leading his people by his spirit to go out into the world and invite a people from all nations to live under the reign of Jesus, not the reign, ultimately, of Caesar Augustus. But how does this happen? What does this look like? Like how do they, this, we, we see the geography here, but what we also see in the book of Acts is the way that this gospel is going to spread. And I'll tell you what, it does not spread like the Roman Empire. It's not built on lies like, hey, that star is my dad. And it's not coercion by the force of a sword, somebody forcing you to accept this gospel message and this king or else I will kill you or stick you onto a cross. What we see in, in the empires of today is that model, right? Like we look around at our political landscape today and it's this me first, this manipulation and lies to try to get myself on the top of the heap to make the things go my way in my life and it's all rooted in fear and anxiety and anger. Paul, a key witness in the book of Acts, he reminds his apprentice that you'll also find in the book named Timothy. He reminds him in a later letter. He says, God, Timothy, has not given us a spirit of fear. But he's given us a spirit of power, dynamite. Given us a spirit of love. And he's given us a, a spirit of a sound mind. A mind at peace. A mind in control of itself. A mind that puts others in front of itself. A mind that is not anxious like the rest of the world. And how do they find this lack of anxiety? How do they find this peace, this soundness of mind? It's the last verses in our, in our passage this morning. After Jesus said this, he was taken up as they were watching and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. Will come back in the same way that he left. This Jesus will return. Just, just as you watched me leave, in the words of the famous Austrian philosopher... I'll be back, right? You get it, you'll get it. I love, so what, is, what does this look like today to be his faithful witnesses? I love the term, I heard a guy named Edwin Freeman said that we are to be a non-anxious presence here on earth. To be a non-anxious presence. And that's been such a helpful term for me in these last couple years, especially as things have been crazy. And listen, there are a lot of reasons in our lives uh, to be fearful. And there are a lot of things that we don't understand. Why did the government say that? Why is this that rule? I don't get that. The question is, what are we going to do with those things that we don't understand? Are we going to freak out? 
or are we going to be a non-anxious presence? How can we find that, that non-anxious presence? Well, it's the presence of the Spirit in us. I love that last chorus of in Christ alone. No guilt in life, no anxiety, no fear in even if I die. Why? This is the dynamis of Christ in me. From life's first cry till final breath, Jesus is on the throne, not Caesar. And he commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns like he promised he would or if I go to be with him even earlier than that, this is the power of Christ that I'm standing in as a non-anxious presence. Jesus left, but he, he's, he's given us his spirit because we can't do this on our own. Only the power and the spirit can cause us to be a non-anxious presence. I heard it once uh, recently. It was, this was a helpful uh, thought. So we need to learn how to replace anxiety in our lives, to replace anxiety with bewilderment, okay? So what does that mean? When we, when we are anxious, the anxiety implies a control. That, I'm, that my brain is telling me I'm supposed to be in control of this situation, but I don't feel like I actually am in control of this situation, and that brings on the anxiety. So what he says is we need to replace that, ah, with a, huh, <laughs> that's weird, <laughs> I don't understand that, and that's okay, because you know why, I'm not the king, I'm not the one that's ultimately in control, bewilderment implies a humility that we don't understand, in fact, I understand very little of my own heart, let alone the reality around me, but anxiety says, I don't understand, I'm not in control, and that's not okay, Whereas bewilderment says, I'm not in control, and it is okay, because I know the one who is. Jill and I have used, learned to use the word, uh, this, this phrase that helps us. We say, that's crazy. So somebody comes up to us and is going on a rant about a particular thing they have a very, uh, very uh, strong opinion about. You know, how do I hear them? Uh, I want to listen and and not just come into an all-out argument, but I also don't necessarily want to validate what they're saying, and I'm kind of in this weird, how do I love them? And so we've kind of adopted this term, that's crazy. That's crazy. So I'm I'm just kind of taking a neutral stance, right? I call it empathetic bewilderment. Like, you don't understand it, and I don't understand it either, right? That's crazy. So now my cards are out there. If after the service you're saying something to me, and I go, that's crazy, right? You know how I really feel about it. So there you go. outed myself. So what does this look like, guys? Like, how do we live non-anxiously in the world today? Two takeaways. I remember the, remember the story of Peter when he's walking toward Jesus on the water? Like, that is a reason to be anxious, right? You're walking on water, and there's a storm blowing if that wasn't enough. There's plenty of reason to be anxious, and as we look around in our lives today, and the circumstances that we find ourselves in today, and we, there are plenty of reasons to be afraid, to be angry, to be confused, But what Jesus called him to was not, Jesus didn't calm the storm. He said, look at me in the midst of the storm and I will get you through. How do we do that? The first thing I would say is to pray about everything. Probably the the best verse I know on anxiety, the best passage is Paul in Philippians. He says, don't worry about anything, anything, anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. So so what he's saying is that not that you will never experience anxiety, but it's to cast that anxiety on him because he cares for us. 
and say, God, I need to know that you are real in this moment. I need to feel your love. I need to understand your comfort. I need your strength, your spirit in me to get me through, to persevere, to endure. And here's the promise he makes. The promise that comes next is not, and then everything will be hunky-dory. It will go the way you want it to go. The disciples have this promise in Acts, and they still get beaten and killed. Did God fail them? He did not. The promise here is in verse 7. It says, then you will, here's your promise, will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything that we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. So I'm not necessarily going to calm the storm. I'm going to give you calm in the eye of the storm. I'm going to guard your heart and your mind. Because what's the spirit we've been given? It's not a spirit of fear. It's the spirit of love and power and a sound mind, even though we walk through the valley. So my call today, we memorize this passage, embed it in your heart so that when you do look at the waves and start to fear, that Jesus would recalibrate your eyes back onto him. The second thing is to preach the gospel to each other. We need, the gospel is not just for the unsaved The gospel's for one another every single day. Hebrews 3 says this way, but encourage each other daily while it is still called today. Why? So that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. The lies of the devil say, put your eyes on the waves. See it and you can't control it and freak out because of it. That's the whisper we hear. And when we stay by ourselves in isolation, that's the lie that can become deafening. And so what he calls, the, the author of Hebrews says, get together brothers and sisters, and encourage every single day because we need courage every single day. The gospel, when I'm starting to freak out, I need my people, right? I need to talk with my wife. I need to talk to my discipleship buddies. I need to talk to my family and remind each other of the gospel. And Justin, Jesus is still on the throne. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. He loves you. And yeah, there might be some sinful things in your heart you got to deal with, but man, Jesus is enough. Remind each other of the gospel truths to breathe out, to be non-anxious. So we see this process as the, the, the light of Jesus is going to go out into a dark Roman Empire just like it is today. How does it happen? It's by the disciples, his apostles, his sent ones proclaiming the good news non-anxiously. They're not freaking out even in the midst of having stones chucked at them, whatever comes. In spirit-powered word, we declare, the witness says what they saw, but also the way that we live in deed, in living non-anxiously to the ends of the earth. This is the story of the book of Acts we're going to read together. And we are actually continuing that story today. Now, does that seem like a doable job in this current empire that we're living in? It does not. It's been a crazy, a crazy run for us. And it can sometimes seem like the good guys are not winning. But, but what we're promised here is that, yes, we can't do it on our own, but here's the good news. We're not on our own. When Jesus sent us out to make disciples, he followed it up by saying, I will be with you always, even to the end of the world, even to the end of the age. And then he left. Did he lie? He did not. He sent us his portable Jesus, the personal presence of Jesus' spirit lives in each one of us and will stay there until the day of redemption. Our job is not to save people. And that's a load off, isn't it? I can't save anybody. John, in, in, in John chapter 1, he says, John the Baptist was not the light. What was his job? He was a witness to the light. 
He was to point everybody. Our superpower is to be able to say, this is the light of the world. His name is Jesus, and he is the king. He is the savior. The king who really did ascend to heaven, unlike the false claims of Julius, and really is coming back one day to make all things right and to bring heaven onto earth forever. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you that this is true. That we can, we thank you for Luke recording these things diligently of those eyewitnesses. So that we can know the certainty that Jesus is no longer in the grave. That he is alive. That he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. That he's interceding for us right this very moment. And that's the only hope that we have. Father, I pray for those in this room today that are experiencing the anxieties of their circumstances. That you would teach them in the heart. That Jesus really had to die for their sin, but that he really did die for their sin. And then they are now fully accepted and can receive the very personal presence of Jesus in their lives through simply trusting that that claim of Luke is true, that he is the king, he is their savior. And Father, I pray that we would experience that in the midst of those anxieties, in the midst of the storms that we're in, that your spirit would guard our hearts and minds with peace so that we could live in the midst of a world that's so divisive, that's so me first, that's so anxiety racked, that we would learn how to be in the power of your spirit to be a non-anxious presence here on earth because we know our savior lives and he will one day come back. Just send us out in the power of your spirit, Lord, to rest in him and to spread that word in the things that we say and the way that we live it's only in the power of the Spirit, in the name of the risen Jesus, the ascended one to the heavens, that we pray these things and that we go non-anxiously in his power. And all God's people said, amen.